0: The last thing that most Christians need is yet another Bible study. That was what a seminary professor of mine said when I was sitting in class, and I was, I was aghast when he said it. I, I, I couldn't believe that a seminary professor would say something that, that, that went really against everything that I had, that I had thought of uh, my faith up to that point. When I was growing up in uh, my small United Methodist church in far western Oklahoma, we had we had Sunday night church. We were one of the we were one of the last um, one of the last Methodist churches that I knew of that uh, that 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 quit Sunday night church so we had a worship service on Sunday morning then we had Sunday night church and we even had a Wednesday night program as well and at that Sunday night church before we before we went into a worship service we would always have a our children's program and our and our youth program and beginning in about second or third grade we began a a bible memorization uh, program at our church for our for our children And so by the time I was in the fourth grade, I could name all kinds of things about the Bible. By the time I was in fourth grade, I was able to name uh, all of the books of the Old Testament in order. I was able to name all of the books of the New Testament in order as well. I, I knew all kinds of facts and figures about the Bible I knew the names of all, of all twelve of the disciples I knew the names of, of Jesus brothers and sisters I knew uh, I knew how old Methuselah was when he died I knew, I, I knew uh, the name of, of, of noah 's sister I knew the name of, of, of Moses' mother I knew, I knew all of the facts and figures of the Bible by the time I got to be in about the fourth grade and then when I started in the seventh grade our our pastor's wife started a, a a year through the Bible study for our youth. Can you imagine it? I was 12 or 13 years old, and I had committed that I was going to read through the Bible that year. Now I know for certain I made it through the Book of Genesis. I can't I can't speak for the rest of uh, of the uh, of the books of the Bible. That's how far most of us get when we make those kinds of commitments. But throughout the years, I have I have been I have been incredibly, incredibly committed to being a, a, a person who, who, knows, who knows the Bible, who knows the Bible. I've, I've I prided myself in knowing the Bible and studying the Bible. So to hear a seminary professor say that one of the last things that most Christians need is yet another Bible study, I was, I was taken aback. And I know that I'm not the only one uh, that is, that's involved in study of Scripture. I was, um, I was in Sunday school class uh, today, and uh, our, our adult Sunday school class started a brand new study on the book of Revelation. David, you are, you are a bold, bold teacher to take on uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, but we started a, uh, the book of Revelation today, and it was outstanding, absolutely outstanding. And I know that many of us are involved Many of us are involved in some sort of Bible study like that. But, but for many of us, it's the last thing that we need is yet yet a, another, another Bible study. This is my today. Today is my 157th sermon here at First Church. Now, I've, I've preached, I mean, I've preached more than that. I, um, I've, I've preached at Friday Night Live, and I've preached at some other events, but at least on, on Sunday mornings, the way that I figure it, this is my 157th sermon here at First Church. Today is my 1,107th sermon of my, of my career. And here at First Church, here at First Church, This is the 6,812th sermon that has been preached in the life of this church since the year 1889 when this church was founded. Right here on this stage, from this stage today, this is the 1,107th, or excuse me, uh, 1,159th sermon from this stage since we reopened in... On uh, April nineteenth, I know it wasn't April nineteenth. It was de- it was Easter on the in the year 1998. Can you imagine sitting through all of those sermons? Can you imagine sitting through? I mean, I, I I've. I've preached, I mean, my wife has heard me preach thousands of sermons, thousands, uh, some of them on Sunday morning, most of them not on on Sunday morning. So she has heard thousands and thousands and thousands of sermons. But my question to us all, including myself, including the one that has preached over 1100 sermons in my career my question to us so are we different because of all of those sermons that we've heard are we different because of all of those hours that we have spent in a Sunday school class sitting in the exact same chair that we've always sat in or at least until the last couple of months are, are, are we different because we've sat through the, uh, the, those, those Bible studies hour after hour after hour, literally, for many of us, hundreds of hours of our lives we have spent in, in Bible studies. And so my question, again, are you different because, because of those studies? Or do you, are, are you different in the way that you talk? Are, are, you, are you different in the way that you act? Are you different in the kinds of songs that you sing? Are you different in your attitude? Is your, are your relationships different because you have been studying the Word? Is your, have you told your face yet that your life should be different because you have been studying the Word? Do you treat your enemies with love and respect because of it? Today we're we're continuing our sermon series dealing with the book of James. James is, is my favorite book in all of the Bible. We we've learned last week about what this book is all about and who it was written to. It's one of our earliest writings that we have, in the New Testament. One of the earliest writings. It could have been, uh, it could have been written around 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is not very long, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This book was likely, at least many of us believe, that this book was likely written by James, the brother of Jesus. He was not a believer uh, while Jesus was alive, but Jesus apparently had, uh, had come to him after the resurrection, and James then became a believer. He became a believer. Can you imagine? He was the the next born in the family. He was Jesus' half-brother, so he was was the next born in the family, and he actually believed that his older brother was the Christ. He believed that his older brother, Jesus, can… I mean, I love my siblings, (laughs) I love my older brothers and sisters, but I cannot imagine, I can't imagine believing one of them was the Christ. But James came to faith. James came to faith. And he was a, he was a leader in the early church. In fact, it appears as though he was the leader of the Jerusalem church that was made up of, of all Jewish Christians. Now remember, the early church, the biggest debate in the early church, in the early Christian church, just again in the, in the first 10 to 15 to even possibly even 20 years, the biggest debate is what do we do with all of these Gentiles? What do we do with all of these non-Jewish people who are, who are starting to believe in Jesus? We're not exactly sure what to do with them. They knew what to do with Jews that believed in Jesus. Well, they would continue to practice their Jewish faith, but they would then believe that the promised Messiah was this Jesus. And so really, in some sense, not a whole lot changed for them, at least in the beginning, until they began to have some clarification and the role of the law in their lives. And so we have Paul, who was beginning to reach out to the Gentiles, and we have, uh, we have James, who is the, the pastor of the largest Jewish Christian church and Christendom, and so there was some debate, it appears, between Paul and James. What in the world do we do then with these Jewish Christians? What in the world do we do then with these Gentile Christians? How does all of this fit together? Because from a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish perspective, there was the law, especially in, especially in first-century Judaism, there was the law. They didn't have Jerusalem anymore. The temple had really, uh, they, they had the temple, but uh, it had kind of, uh, there were Jews all over the world, really. And so the synagogue really took the place of the temple as the primary means by which their faith was engaged. And so in the synagogue, that was where the study of the word came, the study of the Old Testament or their scripture. And so the law became central to their faith. And so as they, began to <clears throat> as they began to follow Jesus then, the law continued to remain central to their faith. And so they began to ask themselves, what then does this law play, what role does this law play then in our faith? And here comes along Paul, and Paul says that the law means nothing, absolutely nothing. You cannot and you will not be saved by following the law. You cannot and you will not be saved by circumcision. The only way that you can be saved is by grace through faith. And that was embraced by the early church. That was the message of the early church. You didn't, we didn't, we don't bring anything into our salvation. It is only by the grace of God that God offers us salvation. Now we, now, we must reply and we must respond, we would say, as, as United Methodists. We do have some part to play in it. Indeed, it is by God's grace that He offers us salvation and our only appropriate response, our only repro- appropriate response then is faith itself. So, there are some, even today, but indeed, in, in, in the early church, there were there were some that were taking it to an extreme. There were some that were saying, "Then, okay, well, I'm a believer in Jesus, so I can do whatever I want. I can I can live I can live no ma- I can live I I can party like it's 1999 every day, uh, every day of the year, and it doesn't matter." Because you see, I'm, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's, there's nothing that I can do or there, there's nothing that I must do in order to earn my salvation. And, and James would affirm that. The book of James would, would absolutely affirm there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. However, there is something that we can do to live out our salvation. Did you get that? There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, but there are demands upon our lives to live out our salvation. So James is an incredibly practical book. I love it because of its practicality. I love it because of its practicality. It, it, it reads almost like the book of Proverbs. There's, there's really not a story that goes along with it. There's not a high Christology. In fact, Jesus is only mentioned two times. There's no mention of uh, his death and his atonement and the resurrection. There's no mention of any of that. And because of all of those reasons, Martin Luther said it's a, it's a, book, it's a book of straw. It won't last at all. You burn it up and there's nothing there's no gold nugget there at the end but the but the early church believed that there was the early church believed that there was and we believe that there is an important message in the book of James as well so very quickly very quickly this is a is a real real simple real simple what James is is telling us today but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So it's real simple. The very first thing that we must do is listen to the Word. We must listen to the Word. We must listen and study. We must listen to and study the Word. Now, I know that today I'm uh, I mean, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, especially those of you who are again, uh, you're joining in in the middle of a global pandemic, either in person or online. I know absolutely that I'm that I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, this is the 28th of July. I would guess over my. Uh, 22 years, 22 plus years of of being a pastor, I would guess that right around the 28th of July is about the lowest attended Sunday of the entire year. People are on vacations, it's hot, it's muggy, uh, and now we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So I know for certain that I'm preaching to the choir. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, We must be committed. We must be committed with all of our might to reading and listening and hearing and studying the Word. It's one of the reasons that I believe attendance in worship is so very important it's so very important. I've done lots and lots of, of funerals over the years and I can't tell you how many funerals I've performed and the family will tell me things like, well, you know, grandma, she wasn't much, she wasn't much of a church goer, but I'm telling you, she was a she was a faithful faithful Christian. Well, you know, you know dad, he he was never he was never really big on, on going to church, but I'm telling you, he, was, he had a heart of gold. He loved, he sure loved Jesus. And I, and I won't say that I, that I lied in those, in those funerals, but I'll tell you, I, am, I don't think, I don't think that you can be a faithful, growing Christian without attending worship regularly. You just simply can't. I've never, I, in fact, I've never seen it. I've never seen someone who was a faithful, really, truly faithful, growing Christian that was not connected to a, uh, to a church body that, that, wasn't, that wasn't committed to attending some sort of worship service in which the Word was proclaimed. And, and, and here's what I think, and, and I know that I've, I've kind of hinted at this before, I've, I've kind of hinted at this before, I think this global pandemic has brought a, a, it has brought about the death of cultural Christianity. Praise God. And you may hear, I mean, that may sound odd coming out of my mouth, but praise God. Over the years, over my 22 plus years of being a pastor, my biggest struggles and my bi- the, the people who are the biggest problems in the life of the church that cause the most disruption, that are most dissatisfied and are the b- ones that scream and yell the loudest when something has changed in the life of the church, it's cultural Christians. That's who it is. People who, are, who attend church because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. These are the folks that, um, will will complain whenever uh, something is rearranged on on the stage these are the folks who will complain if they gave something or their one of their ancestors gave something a small little statuette uh, that had been sitting in the exact same spot for the previous 40 years by the way I'm telling a first-hand event uh, th- th- It had been s- uh, sitting in the exact same spot for the previous 40 years and we decided that possibly now is a new time that we may need to change a a few decorations in the life of the church and we changed it those are the folks that yell and scream the loudest those are the folks that yell and scream the loudest and say you know I'm just not getting fed in this church anymore those are cultural Christians by and large they come to church because of what they can get out of it they come to church because their needs are being met they come to church because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Good business owners, that's, they, they go to church in order to make as many social connections as they, as they can. And they have absolutely and desperately missed the mark of what faith is all about and what attending worship is all about. We attend worship, and we come to worship To worship our Lord Almighty not to get something out of it ourselves not to have our own needs met but instead we are here to worship the living God first and foremost and second we are here so that we can hear a word from the Lord does anybody have a word from the Lord our prayer is that at least somebody should have a word from the Lord that day sometimes it's me other times it's not but we know that the Word is going to be proclaimed. So very important to come to worship, to to be involved in worship. It's so very, it's so very important to be involved in a Bible study. Believe me, and by the way, I just spent ten, minute, 10 minutes expounding on the power of worship and the necessity of worship. But I also, uh, and, and I, I believe in the power of preaching. But, but some of you have heard me say this before. If you are simply relying upon my 20 to 25-minute sermon on Sunday morning for your spiritual nourishment and for your spiritual growth, I fear for you tremendously. If you're relying upon this 20-minute, 25-minute sermon on Sunday morning for your own spiritual growth, I fear for your… I fear for your spiritual growth. We must be involved in study of Scripture in a group. We must be involved in study of Scripture in a group. I've always been astounded when I come into churches, when I see that the that the attendance in Sunday school, adult Sunday school, is around one quarter of what it is in worship. And that's what it is here at First Church. I grew up in a church, I mean, we were, it was an astounding church, um, a troubled church like every church is. It's not a perfect church by any means. But I grew up in a church where typically the Sunday school attendance was almost identical to uh, the worship attendance. I don't know what it was about my home church. I have no idea. Here at First Church, it's around 25%. Around 25% of those who attend worship on Sunday morning are involved in our Sunday school, uh, meaning that we are involved um, in a Bible study during the uh, hour before, before worship begins. I wish I was the kind of preacher that could shake a bony finger at a at a church and say you ought to do better, but I'm not that kind of preacher. We must be listeners and studiers of the Word, first and foremost. Many of us stop right there. Many of us stop right there, and and, and so James goes on and says, those who, those who If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Have you, have you heard the story of Narcissus? Do you remember that story? Uh, Narcissus was, a I guess, a Greek god. I, I'm, not, I'm not. into mythology, so I'm not exactly sure um, where Narcissus uh, fits in all of that. And the story. Of, the story of Narcissus was that he, uh, he had just he had just ended a, a very a deep deep meaning relationship in his life, and so he, um, we went out into the woods, and he was he was saddened because of the end of that. He was saddened because of the end of that relationship. He was was walking beside uh, the water. He saw down in the water, uh, in in the reflection, he saw something incredibly beautiful. I mean, just an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous face. He he fell in love with that face. Wide eyes that were were looking intently, uh, lips that were were curved up, a, a noble nose. He fell in love with that image there in the water. He sat and gazed upon that image hour after hour until he finally realized he loved that image. And so he, he knelt down and he, and he bent down in order to give that image a kiss. But as he, but as he got closer, the, the water began to ripple and the image went away. And so he had to back away and, and let the waters calm and, and this continued for day after day after day, and finally, Narcissus died, starved to death because he was in love with his own… with his own image. Now, the opposite, the opposite of narcissist, is… Uh, is possibly those that we might know today. The… the person who who has a mirror all around them and 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 looks at the mirror but never really sees their reflection never really sees what their what others are seeing never looks at the image they 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 glance over and make sure that their hair is perfect they're able to take the perfect angle for the for the perfect selfie but they are never able to truly to truly see that image It's like the person who who hears the Word but does not do it. So we must be doers of the Word. We must be doers of the Word. Many of us have listened to hundreds of sermons. If you're like my wife, you've heard thousands of sermons from her husband. And I go back to my first question. Are you different because of those sermons? Are you different because of those hours that you have spent studying the Word? You know, I've had, I've had people, when they've given me advice on preaching, they've, they've told me what they, w- what they want out of a sermon. You know what? I, I want something that's going to make en- me think. I want something that's going to engage my going to engage my mind. I want something that's going to engage my heart. I want, I want, I want to think about things. I want to think about things in a new way. I want, I want to be able to reflect on something. I want you to give me some good information. And there have been times that I've preached sermons just, just like that. But I think the intent of the Word preached word, the studied word, is to have lives that are changed. Not just new thoughts, not just new worldviews, but lives that are changed. We know the teachings of Jesus. I know First Church well enough that we know the teachings of Jesus like the back of our hands. As David already, I visited with David already just briefly today about the book of Revelation. Uh, even here, even, even the book of Revelation, we know the book of Revelation at First Church. But do we live out the commands of our Lord? We know Jesus said, love your enemies. We know that Jesus said, forgive those who persecute you. We know that Jesus said, pray for those who seek to do you harm. We know that Jesus taught a way of grace and love and servanthood. We know the teachings of Jesus, but are we doing them? One day, somebody asked Will Williman, who's a, the dean of the chapel at seminary at Duke Hey, they, they responded, replied to his to sermon one Sunday. He said, well, said, Pastor, oh boy, that was a wonderful sermon today. And Williman, Dr. Williman, looked at him and said, well, well, we'll see. We'll see whether it was. Meaning he was waiting to see whether lives were changed. He was waiting to see whether the people who were listening to that sermon, who were hearers of the Word, would then begin to be doers of the Word. So the simple message today is this. You know the Word. Now do it. Live it out. Be doers of the Word in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for your Word. This is indeed your Holy Word. And you've used this word to speak into our hearts and speak into our lives so many times.